0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Buddhist Studies podcast, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tori Montrose, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Chen Xing Han uh, about her new book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists. Chen Xing, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Tori. It's great to be here.
0: I wonder if you could begin uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what brought you to Buddhism and Buddhist studies.
1: Absolutely. So I was not raised Buddhist. I'm Chinese American, came to this country when I was about four years old, and my parents are non-religious, as is pretty common, I think, for people of their generation from China. And I really began to... Really delve into a personal interest in Buddhism in college, maybe around my junior year. In fact, I studied in South Africa, which I mentioned a little bit briefly in this book, V The Refuge, and some of the first Buddhist communities I actually visited in person were in and near Cape Town. But I came to the academic study of Buddhism fairly late in my undergraduate career. In fact, at my final quarter at Stanford, Ben Brosi, who is now at University of Michigan, he was teaching a class on Buddhism in death. And So that was really the first course I took in religious studies, and I was quite intrigued to learn more. And then through a sort of circuitous set of circumstances, I ended up at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, which is, of course, where actually you and I first met. So yeah, so my bachelor's degree was very interdisciplinary. It was in science, technology, and society with a minor in cultural and social anthropology. My BA thesis had nothing to do with religion. It was about mobile phones in South Africa, but it was an interview-based project. And so I think that actually transferred over well for this particular project. So I ended up in a master's program at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, actually the equivalent of a master's of divinity. So I earned a degree in Buddhist studies, but also a certificate in... In Buddhist chaplaincy and after I graduated I did a year-long residency in hospital chaplaincy and it was really after that time that I was still sitting on all this material from this master's thesis, all these interviews and I really felt urgently that this needed to become a book. Um, I felt urgently, but it still took many years for that book to come to fruition. So I think between my first interview and the time that this book was actually published earlier this year was maybe about a seven-year span.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, yeah, I actually wanted to ask you a question about your experience in South Africa. Um, I also studied abroad in South Africa as an oh, undergraduate wow. doing something completely different to what I do now. <laughs> um, but I was wondering what, um, you know, I I found that time to be, you know, a time where, you know, being so far from home and in such a unique and distinctive culture like South Africa, I found it a very great place to experiment and try on new things and, um, you know, new identities and things like that. So I'm wondering if there was something about that experience, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, that that was some of your first encounters with Buddhist communities was in South Africa. And that's, you know, pretty unique Um, (laughs) um, for for a lot of folks to have their first experience with Buddhism be in South Africa, maybe unexpected. So I'm wondering if you could say if there's anything um, about that experience that maybe nudged you to visit communities there?
1: Yeah, you know, I went to South Africa thinking I would end up, thinking a lot about race. And actually what came up more were issues of gender, but Mm. also this sort of personal exploration of religion. And I think being just quite struck by Buddhism's reach and scope. So I'd taken a gap year before college Mm. and spent some time in Asia. So I was able to kind of experience Buddhist communities and Thailand and Nepal and Tibet, just kind of briefly more as a tourist. But then to see that also expressed in South Africa kind of unexpectedly, I remember running into Tzuji there and thinking like, oh Mm. my goodness, there are Taiwanese Buddhists here and Mm. the scope is quite broad. And then I think certain dynamics that in retrospect, I could see happen here in the US too, predominantly white convert groups and just sort of like, I think what really struck me was, yeah, thinking about what does it mean to think about being someone of a minority religion, right? Within the broader scope. And then for my interviews, actually, they weren't about religion, but most of the people I spoke to were Christian. And I was actually very compelled by their kind of the ways that they wove together faith and social justice. And so, Mm. you know, I knew my own affinities leaned toward Buddhism, but it also made me wonder about how Buddhism and social justice and this kind of more service oriented or spiritual care work could all weave together. So I'd say it planted a lot of really powerful seeds, um, that would blossom later, you know, and and it was striking to have this big stack of books with me that <laughs> on Buddhism mean just like a very wide range of books, but then to, you know, try to like experience that in a mm. pretty unexpected setting. And I'd say maybe my, I guess, in Be the Refuge, you know, there's little bits and pieces. I mean, I think something that's striking about the book is that I actually wrote it primarily while living in Cambodia and Thailand. Mm. So really writing a book about Asian Americans based in the U.S., but doing it from a distance. And I found that for me personally, I actually kind of needed that distance. Like you said, the kind of like strangeness of being mm. displaced in a different setting. And that I think it helped me sort of question my assumptions. And frankly, it was also just to shift my experience of what it meant to be an Asian person, to be an Asian person appearing person to be an Asian person in South Africa is a very different experience than to, you know, be that here in the States or to be that in Cambodia or Thailand for that (laughs) matter.
0: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really illuminating. Yeah. That's, It's really interesting. Um, Well, if you could take us through a little bit more about, you know, the inspiration to do the book, Um, certainly the master's thesis you've already mentioned is sort of sprung out as um, as a result of your master's thesis. But if you could talk more about that process of developing the book and um, you also mentioned in the book itself, the kind of multiple lives that the book has had and, and, um, and iterations, if you could speak about kind of that whole process.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I remember casting about for a master's thesis topic, and I'm very good at missing the obvious, but <laughs> the more I started to think about Buddhism in America, and particularly reading sociologists of religion like Wendy Katch, Sharon Se, Carolyn Chen, Jiaming Bao, their work, which is so invaluable and tends to be cited at particular temples and focused on, you know, a particular ethnic group, whether it's Thai or Sri Lankan Buddhists, Taiwanese Buddhists, et cetera. And um, I should mention Tapal Numeric's work as well. And so what really struck me is often there'd be a line or two or a paragraph or so just about how hard it was to find young people in these spaces. And it just got me more curious to think about, well, young adult Buddhists must be out there, and particularly young adult Asian American Buddhists. And I think, so that was one strand. Another strand was just reading more of the popular literature and thinking, you know, Buddhists are definitely a minority in America, maybe only about 1% according to the Pew Forum's 2012 statistics, but of those, two-thirds are of Asian heritage. So again, I felt like there was this kind of disjuncture between the fact that the majority of American Buddhists are of Asian heritage, but then what's visible in especially the popular media. And then within academic writing, kind of this um, ongoing debate, I guess we could say, about two Buddhisms. Mm -hmm. So that was certainly one of the strands as well, this idea that there's a kind of binary between white convert Buddhists on the one hand and Asian immigrant Buddhists on the other hand. And so on a very personal level, I just couldn't ever quite figure out where I fit in there as an Asian American convert Buddhist. And so I had just had all these questions around that that I wanted to explore. And then You know, I'd be remiss not to talk about also Aaron Lee, who was the author of the blog Angry Asian Buddhist, which he started all the way back in 2009. And so he was writing about these issues of race and representation with a focus on Asian Americans. And all of this sort of came together. And it was really Aaron, I remember, in a blog post of his saying, you know, you need to go, uh, just wanting to go out there, gather these stories, hear these voices. And so I thought, okay, I'll just maybe interview a few people. I'll focus on young adults so that I can do these interviews in English. And I was really interested in looking at a broad range of ethnicities. So Asian Americans are spoken of, often lumped together, but of course we represent such a wide range of ethnicities. And so the only way I could think to kind of you know, gather people from multiple backgrounds under this umbrella of Asian American was to just, I had to limit my scope somehow. So to focus it on young adults and explain to people that you know these interviews will be in English. Mm. Um yeah, so there's there's more I could say, I guess. Uh, I didn't think that a lot of people would be interested. Mm. So I actually kept this kept the scope, kept the parameters, I should say, of my categories pretty loose. I said young adult, you know, over 18, 20s or 30s is fine. Mm-hmm. A couple of young at heart 40 year olds kind of snuck in. <laughs> um often I think in our Buddhist spaces this happens, like mm-hmm. the group sort of like the the (laughs) cohort moves and gets older, but the group doesn't really, you know, it's like the young adults became 30 and 40 and they're still calling themselves the young adult groups. So I wanted to be kind of, um, what's the word, maybe like just attentive to the fact that sometimes in Buddhist spaces, young, you know, Mm. (laughs) actually means kind of older. And then for Asian American as well, I wanted people who were of You know, full or partial Asian heritage. And and I wasn't very strict about what that meant. I didn't say you had to be a citizen of the US. Um, So again, keeping those parameters kind of loose. And then also Buddhist, you know, I didn't need people to be card-carrying Buddhists or even out publicly as Buddhists, just people with an affinity for Buddhism. And in retrospect, I'm glad I kept things like this because part of the project was wanting also just to interrogate these categories. I mean, even this term Asian American Buddhist, so many people said, I've never thought about that as a term. Like I've mm. thought of Asian American Christian, for example, but I've just never thought about Asian American Buddhist, this particular intersection of my own race and my own religion. And so it was really fascinating to talk with people. And I was very greedy. So my interview protocol was really long. People were very patient with me. And these interviews were, you know, one and a half to five and a half hours long. Mm. So people had a lot to say. And I think just Based on the sheer length of the interviews, I realized, you know, I felt like we just touched a nerve together and there was a lot more to explore together.
0: Yes. Um, I, I want to circle back to Aaron's role in in the book uh, in a little bit, but I also was wondering if you could say, um, you drop in a, a brief mention in the book to the advice that um, the novelist Ruth Ozeki gives you about right. this project. And I wonder if you could share that. It was such, it was such a um, great story.
1: Sure. Yeah. Ruth Ozeki, who just came out with a called her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, which I'm very mm. excited to read. So back in 2014, when she was promoting A Tale for the Time Being, she gave a talk and um, was very kind afterwards, you know, when I kind of went up to her and said, like, I have this thesis and I'm trying to turn it into a book. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have advice. And so she very generously spoke to me on the phone later. And a piece of advice that just really stuck with me was she really urged me to make the book an account of my curiosity mm. and to write myself into the book. So it took me several years to really fully incorporate that advice. So Mm -hmm. you talked about earlier the multiple lives of this book. And I had this first version of a book, you know, here was out of a master's thesis. I was living in Cambodia. I wasn't even connected to an academic institution. So this is all kind of new to me, new territory. And I managed to write 90,000 word, you know, academic book with lots and lots of footnotes. And I would sometimes bury stories about myself in Mm. these footnotes, but I felt not quite brave enough to come out of those footnotes into the main text. And sort of very fortunately, this manuscript went through peer review. I had some helpful feedback from anonymous reviewers, and it was ultimately rejected, which at the time felt like such a blow. But it actually, what it did was open up a completely new opportunity to basically throw out the entire draft and rewrite it from scratch. And the way I thought about it then was, how do I write this book in a way that speaks to Aaron and his friends, that speaks to young adult Asian American Buddhists? And as I started doing that, I realized I would have to do exactly what Ruth Ozeki advised, which was really to make it a story of my journey, which you know is kind of a narrative thread throughout the whole book and is the very truthful origins of the book, and that I would have to share more of my own story. And it was a bit of a dancing act to try to, you know, weave that in while also making room for the voices of 89 other interviewees.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think you do that masterfully. It's it's, um, quite a feat to both include your your story um, and inter interweave it with with all of these other voices. Um, I wonder if you could say more about the challenges of this kind of. Um, I don't know if you you would consider it an autoethnography um, or or not, but this sort of uh, method, as you mentioned, of kind of. Um, you know, including yourself and having an honest account of the process within the book itself. I wonder if you could speak to that experience and some of the challenges. It, in addition to what we just talked about, which is you know that that it's hard to fit it all in.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. I remember. You know, when I did. I did 26 in-person interviews, which is in such a rich source of material. I transcribed those myself and spent a lot of time with those. And then in addition, I had these 63 e- email interviews. And fortunately for email interviews, because there is some limitation in terms of not being able to meet you know, synchronously and face-to-face, I was able to follow up with maybe half of those people and continue to exchange emails. I've since met many of those people in person. But would, would trying to take this kind of bottom-up approach and just spending a lot of time with these voices and I think maybe one of the hardest parts at first was just this temptation to like obscure myself and erase myself and just deliver these voices but I realized it was very hard to kind of weave them together you know it's almost like there wasn't really a frame for weaving mm-hmm. them together and I realized like well I was present at all of these interviews and I've always really appreciated when anthropologists and sociologists are more self-reflexive in their work so we can really understand where they're coming from and how that invariably their own positionality will shape kind of the end product. And so I think it was really just this iterative process um, and something that really helped me actually was doing this year-long chaplaincy residency. So this is called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education, and it's a very you know supervised kind of learning in providing spiritual care, doing ministry. So I was doing this in a hospital setting and there's this kind of action reflection model, you, and it's kind of very iterative. So you Are on the units, but then there's a lot of self-reflection of how were we personally impacted, and I think doing that kind of writing and then giving myself permission to start integrating this kind of more chaplaincy-oriented writing. And frankly, I actually really dislike that we make these kinds of distinctions right Mm. between intellectual and spiritual. And in a way, the Institute of Buddhist Studies was just such a perfect home for this book, as a place that feels to me both like an intellectual and spiritual home, as a place that really encourages the integration of these different assets. And so as with many things, I think it ended up being, you know, having to sort of cut from the material of the 89 other interviewees or consolidate or pick the best quotes or, you know, I have this like big document of parts I've I've discarded. So then mm. I can feel like it's being composted or will be regrown into a future project. So I don't feel like it's completely being thrown out. Mm. And then for myself, I think the hard part was actually then having to generate more. So the issue was not so much like cutting those stories, but trying to decide what stories of my own do I want to lift up. And that are important for helping guide the reader through what can be, I think, a somewhat perplexing sort of symphony, maybe at times cacophony of voices, because there are so, so many voices. And at some point, I think I decided, you know, rather than just focusing on a few people to really try to weave in as many as possible, (laughs) Um, in part, because I think that category of Asian American is Asian American Buddhist is like this, it's kind of unwieldy, and it's kind of slippery, and it's Sometimes it feels fragmented. It's certainly not monolithic. And I wanted sort of the experience of reading the book itself to kind of reflect the category itself that I was exploring and interrogating.
0: Yes, absolutely. I wonder along those lines, if you could talk a bit about the organization. You have these... Uh, four parts. Um, part one is trailblazers. Um, part two, bridge builders. Part three, interrogators. Part four, refuge makers. Um, but in fact, we see a lot of recurring characters, kind of moving between these mm-hmm. um, different different parts. And um, you know, within each of these parts, uh, you have these one uh, one word chapters that kind of create a, a feeling or a an. an you know, a frame of mind going into that chapter. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how that developed and and maybe talk us through briefly each of the four parts.
1: Sure, yeah. So I really have to thank Noel, one of my interviewees, Noah Alumit, for this idea. These parts are really based on a kind of generational model. So I'll just actually read briefly from the book because I think this is helpful. Sure. Um, i from page 134. So Noel was proposing this alternative for talking about quote-unquote convert Buddhist, and he said, I might suggest generational categories. Many Asian people might say, I'm first-generation American or I'm third-generation American. I think we can use this for Buddhism. By indicating a generation, one can still value one's Buddhism just like a first-gen American is as much an American as a fifth-gen American. But it also gives insight into where a person falls in the induction of Buddhism in one's life and background. And Noah himself was born in the Philippines and raised Catholic in Los Angeles. So this really struck me because I was so used to thinking about generations, you know, like, what generation are you? Okay, I mostly interviewed millennials, right? For example, mm. maybe a few baby boomers. Um, you know, those voices are woven in. I'd love to see a book on Gen Z Buddhists. So there's mm. that kind of way of talking about generations. And among Asian Americans, it's common to be asked, you know, are you first generation, second generation, third generation, etc. Those categories, of course, get very complicated when your parents are from different generations, and so forth. But Noah really introduced me to this notion of like, oh, what generation American Buddhist are you? So then I started thinking, well, several of my interviewees were Jodo Shin Buddhists who are really multi-gen American Buddhists. Their families have been Buddhists in America for multiple generations. And that became part one of the book, which I call Trailblazers. And then there's a pretty big group of people whose parents were Buddhist and had raised them Buddhist in this country so i called them second gen buddhists and that became part two this kind of bridge builders is what i called them and then based on noel's model and part of the reason was a lot of the asian americans i spoke to had, had a little bit of like uneasiness about identifying as convert partly they felt that word was very christian partly they felt that convert buddhism just had this connotation of being white buddhist and they wanted to somehow be able to claim some of the importance of their cultural heritage in this process of you know converting or maybe that you would use another term to describe it um, to Buddhism and so I called these quote unquote first gen Buddhists so there would be people like myself who are really the first generation in this country to be, Buddhist in America, and then finally this fourth section. Um, as you rightly point out, you know these are not actually exactly hard and fast categories. What it did help me do was just divide up some of the interviewees so that I could more emphasize certain voices in certain parts. But the fourth part, Refuge Makers, was really a tribute to Aaron, who I think wanted to weave together de- these different voices. Think about issues of justice. Think about issues of representation and race. And So this fourth part was really a lot of fun to kind of weave together all these voices from the previous three parts. And I would say that that's really when the moment when that came together was when the book started finally taking a form. And within these um, four parts, there's actually three chapters, as you note, that each of them has a one-word title. You know, whether it's affinity or anger, or the last one, solidarity, for example. And um, within each of the four parts, there's just three chapters each, so twelve chapters total. And those three chapters are also meant to sort of arc. So in a way, the first chapter tends to focus on more of the challenges of the group, and then the second chapter. Chapter tends to focus on, you know, us kind of grappling with and working through. And then the third chapter within each part. I won't say it's fully resolved, but I would say there's a greater sense of resolution or um trying to lift up more the sources of yeah, the ways that Buddhism is a source of strength for different young adult Asian American Buddhists, versus, you know, having it be sometimes a source of shame or just something that people don't want to talk about because they're tired of the kind of stereotypes that they're confronted with. And Aaron wrote so beautifully about these stereotypes. i um, humorously too, I should add, you know, stereotypes of the Oriental monk, which Janie Ramur also her book, Virtual Orientalism, I think does a brilliant job of sort of um analyzing that trope for us in popular culture. But, you know, this oriental monk stereotype or superstitious immigrant stereotypes or Aaron talking about very provocatively this notion of a banana Buddhist that, oh, you're basically just yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Essentially, you're like a white convert Buddhist who happens to be Asian. And so the names for these different parts, trailblazers, um, etc., is kind of for me, it was me imagining like, well, rather than these tropes of Oriental monks, superstitious immigrant banana Buddhists, what what do I see when I listen to these people? And so the four parts come out of the kinds of I think frankly the power that I see in Buddhist Asian America
0: thank you that's really clarifying to hear you um, talk through some of those things because having read the book you know uh, as you have described it's such a tapestry but kind of hearing some of your thoughts behind organizing it adds additional layers it makes you want to go back and revisit <laughs> um, uh, especially when um, when using this in the classroom um, which we can talk about a little bit later we've but we've mentioned uh, Aaron a little bit um, already um, I thought I would um, ask you to just sort of Provide a little bit of background of uh, about your relationship with with Aaron Lee and and his you know the way he figures into this book um, certainly you know you can't get through the first page really without um, without you know um, f- his presence uh, and it's woven beautifully throughout and, and very movingly at the end with um, with his uh, passing away but I wonder if you could just say more about his life and influence and in your relationship and and how that figures into the book
1: right so. You know, I first knew Aaron just as the angry Asian Buddhist, and he was blogging anonymously there. And I realized, oh, he's been blogging for a while, even earlier than that, on a group blog called Dharma Folk. And once I started this project at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, my advisor was Scott Mitchell. And fortunately, Scott was very active on the Buddhist blogosphere at the time, and so was you know, the person I would later learn is Aaron. So Scott put me in touch with Aaron. I was very nervous because I thought this person's going to be angry or rude or something. And of course, he ends up being the most friendly, most generous person. He was living in L.A. at the time. And so we kind of immediately struck up a friendship. He was incredibly helpful for the project itself, just letting people know that I was doing these interviews. And, you know, I think that there's this there was sort of this like... I guess there was the blogger persona of Aaron, but then there was just Aaron Lee as a person who was half Jewish, half Toyshanese, um, had a very sort of, Complex and interesting and rich relationship to both Buddhism and his Asian heritage, and we used to joke that Aaron knows all Buddhists. It just mm-hmm. seemed like he would just know so many people. And you know, to this day, I, I recently was just down in LA um, a couple of weeks ago and was meeting up with mutual friends of Aaron, people he'd introduced us to. So in many ways, this book is a tribute to Aaron, and the second rewrite was very much um, after Aaron's you know, really untimely death from cancer at the age of 34. That's when I threw out the academic draft because it made no sense anymore. It's sort of like um, his really unexpected death and wanting to continue his vision of what was possible for Buddhist Asian America um, became the impetus for this book. So there's much more I could say, but... Um, I'd say in many ways, you know, Alexander Chi encourages us to write for our dead. And I think um, in reading that advice and also thinking about Ruth's advice, in many ways, you know, this has become more clear in this past nine months or so since the book has released, but it's a book that's about spiritual friendship that was formed through spiritual friendship, formed through lots of emails and late-light late texts and, you know, a few um, in-person visits. I always forget that I never got to visit Aaron as many times in person as would have been ideal, mm. and um, it's been very moving to be able to, you know, stay in touch with his parents and his family and just continue to yeah, continue, continue the amazing work um, in community with others, the co- amazing work that Aaron did.
0: Yeah, it's really great to see, um, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, you can see very clearly um, within the book the way, you know, he inspired the process. But even since the book has been out now um, for, you know, for some months, you can see, you know, the as you had mentioned this, that you hadn't necessarily expected it to um to touch a nerve for so many Mm -hmm. folks and you can see this kind of um ripple effect of of the the work that you did and the inspiration he provided and i can only imagine that um that he would be very happy to see the success of the book so far and the work that that you and others have been doing on the organizing side and um so yeah it's a really it's a beautiful tribute um uh i wondered if you could um Getting into some of the recurring themes in the book, um, one of the things that I found that um, really struck me the most was about this kind of challenge of of labels around identity mm-hmm. um especially i found in the as you mentioned when you're talking about part two with bridge builders these not quite converts but you know th- these uh, perhaps second generation or first generation depending on how you're looking at it um uh buddhists and and the the difficulty that these um folks had with with this label of buddhist um i think you mentioned a couple of times in the book too that um you know the pew forum the 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 re- the survey data about Buddhists and how some of your interviewees said, well, I don't know if I would have responded definitively as Buddhist for Pew Forum, but here I am talking to you. <laughs> <And> I'm <laughs> I'm a Buddhist identifying, you know, on the you know in in our interview. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that difficulty around identification and and um, the challenges it, it maybe it posed um, for your interviewees and and for you as a researcher in terms of outreach and 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 writing about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there are many parts to that question, so I'm trying to think where to where to begin. I mean, certainly for reaching out, I think it really helped that, you know, I myself identified as Buddhist and Asian American. I remember in one interview someone just saying like, are you Christian? And I, I said, <laughs> oh, no, actually, you know, I didn't necessarily lead with my own identity, but I was very open about it. And so I could just see them visibly relax. And I think in that moment, I um, don't you know, it just, It just made me think about, yeah, all of the kind of obstacles, what it means to be a Racial and religious minority, and that looks like you know discrimination or bullying, or the kind of just on a psychological level, what it feels like to not belong and to be told you don't belong, to be harassed for wearing a Buddha pendant, and so forth. And I think I found it really powerful to talk to people who'd been raised by immigrant parents, but often there were gaps in terms of language, in terms of um, even just trying to understand what is this practice, what does this chant mean. is this ritual? Sometimes feeling like oh, I'm not a good enough Buddhist compared to my parents or grandparents. But also, so there's this kind of like vertical dimension with, um, you know, within one's own family or within one's own community and ethnic community. But then also this horizontal dimension of looking around and noticing well, all the spokespeople for Buddhism appear to be white men or white mm-hmm. scholars or white converts. And this kind of feeling like, does my own Buddhism matter? And even you know, in schools, people's own forms of Buddhism not really ever being represented, I think. So I think that just proceeding carefully in terms of interviews, and I'm just I don't know, I remain sort of awed and humbled by people's willingness to talk with me and their openness. And I think I'm very grateful for the chaplaincy training, because I think a lot of that informed the types of just listening and invitation and, you know, not every interview went well. And that in and of itself was also informative, that there were times when people didn't want to share more or kind of really like shut down and those were also moments of learning for me. And I guess I would say that, you know, sociologists' notion of sort of kind of having an ascribed identity versus an achieved identity for the the second-generation bridge-builder Buddhists in particular it was very inspiring to hear them talk about their spiritual journeys and the kind of ways in which they'd inherited a certain form of Buddhism. And then often, especially in college, the first time really being away from their families, away from their temples, and starting to make sense of their own Buddhism within this broader form of American Buddhism and also global Buddhism. And, you know, I trace Eric's story, which I found to be so moving, the kind of ongoing process of trying to understand his parents and finding eventually a place of, you know, It's always an ongoing process, so it's not an end point, but a stopping point that felt more inclusive and understanding of his parents' Buddhism, not needing to denigrate that, but also an ability to try to understand for himself, oh, what does it mean for me, you know, as someone who grew up speaking English and who's most comfortable in that language and understands Buddhism in a very different context? How do I kind of, um, there's a chapter called Reclamation, so kind of like reclaim Buddhism for myself.
0: Right. Yeah. I I found it really fascinating. There's some interesting parallels, you know, in my own experience, uh, being really interested in Buddhism and um, after college moving to Japan and I wanted to talk to everybody I met in Japan about their religious beliefs right. <laughs> and um, you know it was it was very awkward for for many people the, the directness of my questions <laughs> my, the naivety of asking you know are you Buddhist and can you talk to me about you know and <laughs> the identity the kind of resistance about identifying with those kind of direct labels of saying well I mean my family is Buddhist and you know we go to temples you know for various holidays and and you know of course many of them would have butsudan altars in their oh. homes but um, to kind of identify their you know with their hold that individual identity as a Buddhist was a little more complicated and people were more reticent to mm-hmm. um, to answer in that way and so I saw some interesting kind of parallels that you know oftentimes in the Japanese setting it can be kind of mixed in with, um, you know, relationship to the idea of kind of Christian religiosity and, mm-hmm. and identifying in the, on a personal kind of individual level, um, you know, with with uh, with kind of ascribing to a single faith, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, on the ground. And similarly, like with the Pew Forum, um, but in Japan, there's plenty of surveys that say, you know, that a lot of um, people in Japan don't identify with any religious religious um, uh, any religious identity. And then, uh, you know, the temples are, are still quite popular in major holidays and years and whatnot. And, and again, these boots it on home altars. So mm-hmm. this kind of, you know, grappling with different ideas about what, um, you know, what it means to be a Buddhist, like what is a Buddhist? Mm-hmm. I think your, your book really addresses that in, in so many ways and, um, mm. and really, you know, leaves the question open um, (laughs) rather than tries to close it and resolve it for us. It leaves it open, which is, um, you know, much more fruitful, I think, from a scholarly perspective, (laughs) but hopefully also um, welcome from a more general perspective, just on a societal level Mm. um, to be, to sort of open, open that up. So Mm. I really appreciated that, um, that discussion, especially um, let's see. So I'm wondering if also um, you know, you could uh say a little bit about um the in the um let's see, in the um fourth part in Refuge Makers, you talk mm. a bit about um where you deal quite uh frankly with issues of uh racial intolerance and um uh, anger and, um, kind of getting back to this idea of identity about the, the sort of erasure of Asian Americans from the story of, of Buddhism in America and the ways that that brings up a lot of, you know, um, complicated feelings for, for your interviewees and for yourself. And I wonder if you could speak more about that, especially, um, you know, this project being, you said about seven years from, from start to finish, Mm -hmm. a lot has changed in the American landscape. Um, especially, you know, with the, with the recent, um, Atlanta shootings, uh, bringing a heightened consciousness to folks outside of the AAPI community about, um, about Asian hate and of course, uh, hate, hate, uh, hateful acts against Asians relating to, um, you know, COVID-19 and that mm-hmm. and kind of misplaced uh, blame and things like that. I'm wondering if you could say um, a little bit about both the way these issues get brought up within uh, the book, and then sort of how, um, in re- in very recent times, perhaps like post publication, or you know maybe after your final draft was submitted, um, you know how you're thinking about this has has continued to move.
1: Right. No, that's a really great question. Right. When I was writing this book, Black Lives Matter was still fairly lewd. There's maybe only one mention of it during the interviews. And so in some ways, the book feels a bit like a time capsule, uh, which I think is very valuable because there's actually, you know, the history of Asian American Buddhism is very deep. But unfortunately, much of that history is lost or requires a lot of excavation as, you know, people like Duncan Williams and Funi Sue have done a brilliant job of doing that. And, um yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this this last section really came out of I remember in the actual interviews, I actually wanted people to respond to certain blog posts that Aaron had made and just the wanted to ask them about, you know, how it felt to see Asian American Buddhists represented or, you know, not represented at all. And so I think these issues of representation are still very much relevant, but certainly I think Aaron's work and the work of many other people have shifted that, you know, we're much farther along than when Aaron started blogging. I mean, we have, you know, three new associate editors at Lyons who are focused on Asian American and African American Black Buddhist issues, for example. Um, So it's been a very unexpected time for this book to come out, right, during a global pandemic. And all of the just, um, yeah, everything that's going on that you mentioned. So I'd say that my thinking continues to really be informed just by, um, I'm kind of marveling at how many people are talking about issues of race much more openly. I mean, when Aaron began, he would get so much pushback, people would call him a racist. And of course that still happens as our Mm -hmm. colleague Anne Glag, you know, informs us in terms of alt-right Buddhists and that sort of thing. But I see a much bigger group of people willing to really confront issues of race head on and really trying to understand it from a Buddhist perspective. Um, so it's really exciting time for this book to be sort of one small piece in that convers in this like much broader conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. I wonder if you could say a bit about. Um, so I, I have assigned some of your chapters for mm-hmm. for my students uh, first in the, a graduate course that was an intro to Buddhism and um, and now in an undergraduate class this semester so students haven't read it yet but um, one of the things I'm I am you know one of my motivations for including it in a class on intro to Buddhism is again, to sort of counter this um, phenomenon of erasure um, to the story of American Buddhism. I wonder if you could say um, what your hope being that this is a, um, a kind of hybrid book that includes mm-hmm. both academic methods and also very, you know, kind of personal and, and broader um, approaches. I wonder if you could um, say a bit about how Buddhist studies scholars Um, how you hope they might use the book or what they might take from it. Um, and then on the other side um, you know for a more popular audience what you hope maybe the goal is the same but <laughs> if you can <could> say <laughs> a bit about um, your hopes for how the book um, would be would be used especially in a Buddhist studies context in an academic context
1: mm. you know I was thinking just to back to an earlier question you were mentioning and I was thinking about how when I asked people I didn't ask people like are you Buddhist I'd ask people when people ask, what religion are you, how do you usually respond? <laughs> and I was mm. thinking how even the ways I framed these questions were very much about opening conversations rather than like like getting through a survey, if that makes sense. Right. And so I'd say my broader hope very broadly is to like open up these kinds of conversations like you and I are having and between people and Honestly, the book kind of came out of a place of like loneliness for myself, of just like, where are all the other young adult Asian American Buddhists? What can we learn from them? And so there's that aspect of wanting to alleviate loneliness. And particularly, I think, in the undergrad setting, it's been so um, heartening for me and just really satisfying, I must say, to hear that it's being taught in college classrooms and in high school classrooms. I believe one feedback from, some, from a student that I got through professor was something like, it feels like she climbed into my backyard and knows way too much about my family, which might be the best compliment I've ever received. I promise I do not stalk anybody for this this project. I followed all IRB protocols, but something about, you know, being able to recognize oneself. And I hope then say like, oh, but my experience is different. And I'm hoping, you know, the book has a flame on the cover and I'm hoping it not only sparks conversations, but more writing on this topic, which to me has been just such a lacuna and such an Obvious one. Like I want young people especially to feel that their voices are valuable too. And you know, I'm getting, I feel like I have a running list of other articles and books that we wish will be written about the Asian American Buddhist experience, whether it's focusing on Hawaii or other geographic regions, since my book is a bit more California centric, or focusing on the experience of LGBTQIA plus folks, talking about sexuality and queerness, you know, class and gender, talking about the experiences of adoptees, Asian American adoptees, or people. Who mixed race. I'm very excited for Gen Z who are, you know, I think that's such a much more normal part of their experience. So how do our kind of like old, you know, somewhat stilted categories of identity hold up to their lived experience? Um, And more broadly thinking about these international and transnational dimensions to Buddhist identity. So it just feels like there are so many directions to go in. And I hope that, yeah, with scholars, you know, take take those directions or introduce their students to them. And I think on a popular level, I hope that people also explore these directions and in creative ways to understand. I think it felt like a bit of a leap of faith for me to write the book, you know, in the way it ultimately did. I think it was fortunate that it wasn't in a PhD. I wasn't trying to like get tenure with this or anything. And so, to be able to realize like there is a place for these kinds of hybrid books, it can take a while and take a lot of perseverance to get them published, but that there is a real value that they can bring people from really different um, locations together. And I think those particular conversations we're able to have are very generative and really exciting.
0: Right. I could see, too, you know, you were saying part of this is motivated by your own loneliness. And I could see from a popular level this being a real comfort to Mm. other, you know, I'm not in the AAPI community, but I could see, um, you know, it being comforting to, to even if you're, you know, um sort of in an isolated part of the country or something mm-hmm. where maybe you don't have a, a large AAPI community, um, perhaps, you know, this book can provide a bit of community, you know, in, in yeah. the way that um in the way that it can. I also, you know, was thinking about um y- y- what you said about your hope of it being generative. One of the things you provide in the book is an appendix, uh, several appendices, but the Mm -hmm. first appendix, which I thought was an interesting thing to include, is the questions for other Asian American Buddhists. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you say a bit about that and what your intent behind including that was?
1: Sure. It was one of the last interview questions that I asked people. It was kind of, you know, the whole methods model was very like snowbally, including at the end, who else should I speak to? But also, you know, what questions would you like to ask other Asian American Buddhists? And so part of the book is bringing together, you know, very different kinds, so to speak, of Asian American Buddhists, and realizing like people had all sorts of interesting questions for each other. And so I thought, oh, why not put these all into an appendix? And, you know, maybe... In a in a temple or in a sangha, people can use some of these questions to ask each other, or use it in a classroom setting, or even frankly ask their friends. Right? I remember Aaron at one point talking about, you know, it's kind of this common occurrence that people who grew up Buddhist will like find out, oh, this other Asian American friend of mine also grew up Buddhist, but they never talked about it. And they might have known each other, known each other for years, and not known about that dimension until maybe they visited each other's homes and saw the home altar with the fruit on it or something like that. Um, so so yeah um that those appendices i think it's also part of the part of the hope that people will, uh, will, will' ask each other these questions which are sometimes seen as a little bit taboo or you know a little bit rude questions about religion politics race <laughs> that kind of thing but actually i think there's a way to have these questions that really um yeah open us up to new possibilities yeah i think
0: um you know the questions say a lot about you know, some of these feelings that get addressed and, and worked through in some of your, you know, in, in the interviews themselves, it kind of helps reflect the state of mind, you know, you, they're not attributed, the questions are not attributed to individual interviewees, but you get a sense yeah. of the kind of, again, this, um you know this myriad voices of mm. um, of the community and, and your interviewees just through the questions themselves, as you said. There's you know some are a little bit more um, you know aggressive and some are more <laughs> exactly. kind of contemplative. And um, but yeah, I agree. Those lists of questions are great. Um, I wonder if we you know uh, this is a strange thing to ask at the, toward the end of an interview, but I'm wondering if you could explain the title itself. The the reference be the refuge. Sure.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So be the refuge was the last blog post. That that Aaron ever wrote. He was in about his cancer diagnosis. He actually wanted to start a new blog. So he'd had Dharma folk, this group blog with friends, and then Angry Asian Buddhist. And over the years he was I don't know, I think moving towards also thinking about there's that role for anger, there's a role for kind of protest, but also thinking in some ways like more generatively and, you know, what what are the kinds of spaces we want to create? And so it's such a beautiful blog post. Um, I reproduced it in the book and it's also freely available online. And it really comes out of him asking us, you know, what are the ways that, we can be a refuge for each other. He was reflecting on the ways he could be a refuge, even though he had cancer, he was reflecting on the ways other people were a refuge for him during that very difficult time of going through such intense treatments. And so it actually took me a long time to figure out the title. I had a much worse title for a long time. And then, you know, again, I'm very good at missing the obvious. And then it realized like, oh, like, of course it has to be, be the refuge. And it's, that's, yeah, just this broader invitation that I think we're all, Figuring out, co creating this. And I think so much of us, especially during this time, there's so much grief. There's so much in the world that's very, very overwhelming. And what are even just the small ways we can be a refuge for ourselves, for each other, or we can seek refuge? And I also liked that, you know, we have the three refuges in Buddhism so that there was that kind of connection to Buddhism as well.
0: Yes, great. Thank you for explaining that. I think one of the things that, um, this really, uh, the title, you know, really connected for me was this event that you um, co-produced, I would say, the May We mm-hmm. Gather. How would you describe your your role in, in organi- co-organizing?
1: Sure, um, co-organized. One and, of many, many people who made this right, event
0: possible. <laughs> sure. So I wonder if you could say a bit about about that event and maybe the way it kind of um, figures into your you know, your future projects, your current projects. Mm.
1: Right. So on May 4th, we had this event called May We Gather, a National Buddhist Memorial for Asian American Ancestors. And I co-organized this with um, Duncan Williams and Funie Su. And it really came out of, for us at first, just conversations about the kind of pain and frustration we were feeling at the rise in anti-Asian violence. And then after the Atlanta shootings, that was a real galvanizing moment for us where we kind of felt very urgently the need for a kind of ritual that brought together Asian American Buddhists, but also Buddhists of all different backgrounds and, you know, actually people who aren't even Buddhists. So we wanted to keep the events focused or centered on the Asian American Buddhist experience, but inclusive of all. Um, And if people want to learn more about that, they can go to maywegather.org. And there's also the full video of the ceremony as well as a shorter 10-minute video. And I think that relates a lot to what we were talking about, about sort of generative, generativity and uh, to me, what strikes me is that this event really just came out of conversations and friendship, you know, um, and a lot is possible when we really talk about, you know, in an open way, kind of, not just intellectually but spiritually, emotionally, what's happening for us, especially in the in the face of so so much suffering. I think that can feel so much bigger than ourselves, and so we're you know continuing. We continue to talk um, even after this event and hoping to do another um, May We Gather for it the following year. And I would say like the kind of ethos of doing something you know if we're going to duncan is kind of the type of person who really encourages us you know if we're going to do something let's make it meaningful and i so i think that spirit informs my current work and i think doing an event like that seeing you know 7000 people join this live stream realizing even when we feel isolated and lonely actually so many people Are you know, care about these issues and are out there. And I think often, you know, I'm married to an academic, so I know that academia itself can be very lonely too, but that there's also this element where we care for what we study. I mean, we're so fortunate in Buddhist studies to study something that just inherently has meaning for many, many people in the world and has meaning for our students who are grappling not just with intellectual journeys, but spiritual journeys as well. And so I'd say after the event, it's really encouraged me to, you know, continue to integrate these different strands that sometimes we like to keep separate or siloed and to really have fun with the kind of creative possibilities that are that, you know, that emerge when we really think about Asian American Buddhism, you know, as distinct from Asian Buddhism or as, as a really, I don't know, a site of a lot of possibility that I would say a lot of untapped possibility.
0: Great. Well, along those lines, are you working on a new book project or um, any new research that you want to share at this time?
1: Sure. Yeah. I recently finished a memoir about many things about Buddhist chaplaincy and grief and translation and spiritual friendship. So I'm kind of still in that project, um, seeking a home for that particular project and um, have some kind of newer projects percolating, although it feels a little bit early to talk about them. But I would say that I've been thinking a lot about, yeah, just absences and Mm. kind of the kinds of, You know, Asian American Buddhists were kind of absent. So I was writing into that absence. Um, This memoir project is kind of a response to the chaplaincy memoirs that are out there. And a lot of it is based in Christianity. And there are some really wonderful Buddhist chaplaincy memoirs, you know, Sharon Sue wrote Occupy, Occupy This Body, for example, recently, but just wanting to see more. So I'd say the memoir is, If Be the Refuge is kind of an invitation for more people to write into this space of Mm -hmm. Asian American Buddhism, whatever that means. Like this memoir was my own response, like taking up that call. And then these future projects are, I've been thinking about kind of Asian American Buddhist literature and just, um, just a lot of, different things. But I'm kind of a slow writer. Projects take me a long time. So I'm in the kind of baby stages for that. And um, I'm currently also the Buddhist chaplaincy program coordinator at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. And it's been really fun to kind of go back into that world since I was living in Southeast Asia for much of of the last uh, presidency. And so I was not as connected to chaplaincy, Buddhist chaplaincy and spiritual care. And it's been really wonderful to reconnect back into that world more. So I suspect that will also have a bearing on whatever projects emerge.
0: Great. Well, I look forward to seeing all that comes next for you. I really enjoyed having uh, this conversation with you. And I want to thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Tori. It's been really such a delight.